Hi, everyone. Um, it's so good to be with you. Um, I'm actually based in Hastings uh, down on the southeast coast. But, you know, one of my best days of this year so far was a day spent in York. Um, I was visiting a friend who lives actually north of York, but we did a day trip to York in August. And what a beautiful city you guys have. Honestly, it's been one of the best days of this year for me uh, to just spend a day wandering around in York. Uh, with a mate so um, yeah it's a lovely city I, I work for my local church um, here in Hastings so I oversee our kind of social action and engagement with the local community uh, but I also as um, Caleb said work for Jubilee Plus which is a Christian charity that looks to equip churches like yours uh, like mine to make more of a difference in the lives of the most vulnerable those trapped in poverty or injustice of any kind so um, I know that you guys are in a series called One Body, uh, looking kind of based around 1 Corinthians 12. And so I want us to look at verses 21 to 26 this morning. Um, so if you've got a Bible and you want to turn to it, that'd be great. But if not, I'm going to read it anyway from the NIV. Um, so 1 Corinthians 12, verse 21 says this. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honourable we treat with special honour, and the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honour to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. Um, and for those of you who aren't Christians or aren't familiar with the Bible, who might be watching this, you might think, what's all this about? You know, why is it describing the body like this? Well, actually, this chapter is talking about the family of God, the people of God, and it's comparing it to a human body. Um, so we're going to unpack this morning a bit of what does this actually mean? What does it mean to say like the less honourable parts are given greater honour? What does it mean to say that the weaker parts are indispensable. For me, this is uh, one of many, many signs in the Bible that the uh, kingdom of God, that the way God does things is very much upside down compared to society. So when we're looking at um, people in terms of this being a picture of the family of God, I think what it tells us, it just reminds us that actually Jesus spent a lot of his time with people who others despised, others rejected, uh, if you picked a group of people and um, thought the, this group have got nothing to offer the community, nothing to offer society, they make no valuable contribution. Those were exactly the sort of people that Jesus spent the vast majority of his time with, exactly the sort of people that he spent um, a lot of his energy engaging with um, in terms of healing them, in terms of having dinner with them, in terms of talking with them, in terms of... Uh, forgiving them, calling them to follow him. You know, all sorts of people. It, Jesus mixed with prostitutes uh, who, who were despised, who were thought of as just, you know, absolute sinners, uh, to use that kind of language. He mixed with lepers. He even touched them, even though um, in his day to touch a leper, it would have been um, thought that you then become unclean because you've touched someone who is called unclean. Jesus mixed with tax collectors, um, 
you know, it's like, I guess, the equivalent of saying that if Jesus came to York today, he'd go and find all the um, parking attendants who most recently gave you a ticket on your car for overstaying by two minutes. And Jesus chose to go and spend time with those people. You know, it's the people that annoy other people, the people that we feel are out to get us, um, people who we think, well, how could you live your life like that? Those are the people that Jesus spent his time with, the less honourable people, the the ones some might call weaker people. And, you know, this is some of my story, actually. Um, I became a Christian when I was 15. But before that, as a kid, I grew up um, living in a, the 16th floor of a council block of flats um, that had no central heating. It had one phone for every uh, person living on the 16 floors. The, the phone was on the ground floor. So if you wanted to use it, you had to go all the way down the stairs and hope that no one was on it or that there wasn't a long queue for it. Um, I grew up having um, free school meals. In I went to the roughest school um, in Hastings. Uh, and then I became a Christian at the age of 15. And suddenly, to be honest with you, I became much more conscious of my poverty. I became much more conscious of the fact that I was living um, in relative poverty and that that didn't seem to be the same as a lot of people in my church. So that was a real culture clash for me. Actually, becoming a Christian um, from my background, the bit, there was a big culture clash in terms of there was lots I had to learn about, oh, OK, I need to read the Bible and about praying and about worshipping and things I'd never really thought about before. But to be honest, in many respects, the bigger culture clash for me was actually the class difference, was actually suddenly meeting people who lived their lives in a way that I just never experienced. I'll, I'll give you um, a practical example. I often talk about this. Some of you who've heard me speak before may have heard me say this, but until I became a Christian, I had never seen food served in separate dishes. So I'd never seen you know, meat in one dish, vegetables in another, potatoes in another, and then you're supposed to help yourself. Uh, to me, that was just such a weird a kind of bizarre way to see food presented and what happened was I'd become a Christian and nice Christians started inviting me around their houses for dinner and they would set out their food like that and they would say to me well, you know you're the guest you go first and honestly I would feel deep deep anxiety because I'd not seen food like that I didn't know what you were supposed to do I honestly didn't know if there was an order in which you were supposed to put the food on your plate I didn't know how much food you were supposed to take um, I didn't know if there were some kind of un, unwritten rules that just I wasn't aware of. And I was worried that I was going to embarrass myself um, or do it wrong. And I'd always try and say, oh, no, no, you go first, thinking if they went first, I could copy them. I could imitate their behavior. But, you know, nice, um, polite middle class Christians never would let the guests go second. So I'd always end up just having to do it. And and there have been loads of things like that in my life. And, and there still are today, actually, where I feel like I'm, I'm learning to... Um, adapt to how everyone around me behaves although what I would say is in recent years I've stopped trying so much to learn it and instead I felt more comfortable to just say I don't understand how we're supposed to do this or I don't understand how that works uh, but when I became a Christian and, and do you know what for at least 10 years afterwards my life was chaotic it was messy um, I was troubled and I caused trouble um, you know all sorts of things happened because when you become a Christian, your life doesn't change overnight, right? You still are connected to everything that's in your past. And then some of that's good and some of it's not so good. But so for me, a lot of my upbringing kind of came into my Christian life with me, most of it, I guess. 
So I ended up in situations like at the age of 19, I ended up with nowhere to live. And a couple in the church took me in. Um, over the next few years, I wandered away from God. I didn't feel like I fitted in. I felt like I don't, I'm not the same as everyone around me. And by wandering away from God and, and kind of reverting more to uh, my childhood experiences, I got myself into huge debt. Um, I was unemployed for big seasons of time. And, and, you know, there are stereotypes around people in poverty, aren't there? Particularly if you've watched some of those TV programmes like Benefit Streets that kind of paint a picture of people in poverty uh, that pretty much assumes they are kind of architects of their own fate. But I would have lived up to many of those stereotypes. My sister and I were unemployed together for months on end. And we used to um, sit around at home in our pyjamas all day, um, smoking, watching TV. And then we used to put our clothes on over our pyjamas and walk to the job centre. It's about a 45 minute walk to sign on and get home, get, you know, take your clothes off, be back in your pyjamas. Um, some of these stereotypes, you know, about people who go to the shops in their dressing gown and things like that. Never actually done that. I, I joke sometimes, oh, well, I've got standards. But, you know, I, I haven't really, in one sense, I've done exactly what those stereotypes say. Um, certainly when I was away from God, if I got a bit of money, um, I would use it to buy things that were not food, uh, you know, whether that was cigarettes or cannabis or, you know, things like that. I, I would have prioritised that over eating because, well, because I was addicted, basically. And so to me, it made more sense to spend if I got a little bit of money on those things. Um, the reason I'm telling you this is because I think so often we can buy into these myths and we can have a view of a certain type of people. Um, and sometimes I find when I talk about it, people don't expect, you know, a, a Christian um, who works for a church or writes books or uh, gets to speak in other churches to be able to say, actually, do you know what? All those stereotypes, all those myths, I, I've probably lived up to them or down to them at some point um, in my Christian life. And, you know, there was a period when I came back to God where I had to sleep on the floor for 18 months because I didn't have a bed. So my background and experiences of poverty in, in two ways, one, through circumstances that had nothing to do with me and that were totally beyond my control. And the other was because I made some bad choices that got me into poverty um, or deeper into it in different seasons of my life. But I think, to be honest, for most people, that's true. Most of us, whatever the circumstances of our lives, have a mixture of external factors that have shaped us, that have led to our lives being the way they are, and decisions we've made, good or bad, that have, that have done it. And so I think, for me, when I'm looking at a passage like this in 1 Corinthians 12, I'm thinking, God honours the weaker parts. God gives honour, bestows honour upon those we think don't deserve any honour at all. And God's plan and vision for someone with my background or people with much worse backgrounds who've experienced much more poverty than I have, God's vision and plan is actually quite glorious and quite far beyond what we might actually imagine. I love it in Isaiah 61, a passage that will be familiar to some of you who've been around church for a while. You know, it talks about the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor, to release captives, to bind up the brokenhearted. But so often we stop short and we don't go on to read the verses that come next, which is they shall become oaks of righteousness for the display of God's splendor. 
they shall become those who go on to renew, rebuild and restore the long devastated places. So, you know, Hastings, uh, where I live, was called by a national newspaper a couple of decades ago, Hell on Sea. Well, that sounds like a long devastated place. So what's God's vision when he saves someone out of poverty uh, in an area that some people would call Hell on Sea? It's actually that people like me should become oaks of righteousness for the display of his splendor, that we should become the rebuilders, the restorers, the renewers. It's, it's not just that we get lifted out of poverty um, and then, you know, that's, that's fine, our lives are then great. It's not about that. God's vision is so much more than that. It's that we get lifted out of poverty and we become those who lift others out of poverty, who rebuild the lives of others, who restore the lives of others, who renew the lives of others, who actually come and take our place in, in church, in the one body of Christ. And we come and we take our place. And God says, because you are less honourable, I'm going to bestow greater honour upon you. Because you are weaker, you are going to become indispensable in the body of Christ. I think this is a totally kind of topsy-turvy, upside-down way of seeing things. So how do we become like Christians and churches where actually people from all sorts of backgrounds can come and not just join us on Sundays when we're able to do that, not just kind of check in with our live stream, not just join our midweek groups, but actually how do we become uh, Christians and churches who really welcome those from different backgrounds, those whose life experiences may look so vastly different from our own. I think there's a number of ways that we do this. I think one of them is, and they all begin with M, which I don't normally do when I speak. It's just a bit of a coincidence this morning. But the first one I think is, it's who are our mates? Who are we actually friends with? Do you know what? I've got some friends who absolutely make me wince. Like, I, you know, I mix some of my friends together sometimes and I think I know that that is going to cause me embarrassment and those moments of like, oh, you can't say that in front of this person. I don't see Jesus particularly getting embarrassed about who he was hanging out with. If anything, he bestowed honour on those everyone else thought he should be ashamed to hang out with. So I want to make sure that I've got mates in my life, friends in my life, who might embarrass me, might make me win, who people who are nothing like me, people whose life experiences are so different to mine so that I can learn from them so that I can actually have a broader understanding of humanity and human experience in my community by mixing with people who are completely different to me you know I think it's incredible that Jesus in his group of disciples put together some fishermen and a tax collector who naturally would have despised each other can you imagine those fishermen they'd had taxes taken from that tax collector. The tax collector was supposed to be one of their own people, but had taken taxes from them to give to their enemy, the Romans, their oppressor. Think about that. When, when Jesus called Matthew the tax collector, I wonder how the fishermen amongst his disciples reacted. I think I'd have definitely been like, Jesus, what are you doing? Like that, he's not one of us. You don't understand. He's he's done us harm. He's supported our oppressor. He's made a profit on our back, off our backs. That can't be right. But I think Jesus deliberately puts together uh, people who would not naturally be friends in his group of disciples as, as a foretaste of what the church is supposed to look like. That actually, in the wisdom of God, we are supposed to be diverse churches where we mix with people who have totally different life experiences, 
to us um, in terms of social status, uh, race, ethnicity, economic well-being, all of those different things. We're supposed to be a diverse body, but that doesn't mean we just mix together in meetings. It has to mean that we become friends with people who are different to us. And that's difficult. It's not always easy. I'm sure you know this, but actually it's important. It's really important because it's part of how we express something of the kingdom of God to the world outside us by people who should naturally never get on, never have anything in common, coming together, worshipping the same God, being part of the same body of Christ and actually doing life deeply together with authenticity, vulnerability, honesty, you know, all those sorts of things. So firstly, it's about our mates. And secondly, and related to that, I think it's about our meal tables. Well, this is a difficult one to talk about at the moment because obviously we can't really have people around for dinner for the most part. But actually, I think when we are allowed to again, who we have to dinner, I think, speaks volumes. Because in one sense, I find it quite easy to go and do a shift at a food bank. I find it quite easy to donate food or go and do a shift at a soup kitchen or a night shelter and even sit down and have meals with people there who whose lives look very different to mine right now. But actually, there's a real difference between that. That's kind of it's great. It's really valuable. It's really important. I'm involved in all those things. But you can still hold people at arm's length when you do that. Whereas if you're prepared to sit down and have a meal, at your meal table or at their meal table with someone who's very different to you. I think that speaks volumes. I also think like for me, my um, experience of church as family has been pretty much based around meal tables. Um, I live on my own. And so actually for me, eating with other people is a key way that I feel part of the family of God, part of the body of Christ. Uh, last year, I managed to go for 46 days in a row eating with friends and not having to cook for myself. I think that's pretty um, impressive. My mum thinks I'm a complete scrounger, but you can uh, make up your own minds as to what you think. But for me, being able to be fed for so many days or eating with people for so many days and not having to cook for myself, it spoke volumes to me of the love of God for me, but also the love of my church family for me. It made such a profound difference. And of course, um, I know that for some hearing that you might think, well, no one ever really invites me around. Let me just be clear. I invited myself to a lot of those places. Um, I didn't wait for the invitation. But during this season when we can't do that, actually, I found that people are still expressing their heart for me as a member of the family of God through meals. I've had so many people like, basically text me and say, we've cooked too much food today because we wanted to give you some. Like, when can I drop it around to you or when can you pick it up? Um, when we were obviously having an um, eat out to help out scheme. You know, just being able to say to friends, let's go and eat together, um, you know, try and do the economy some good at the same time. But we can still bless people with food. People I know who are having a hard time at this time, you know, just to even uh, you, you can buy them a voucher for just eat so they can choose to buy themselves a takeaway. There's something about that's expressed around food that I think is really key in the Bible. And I don't think we should lose it just in this season when we're not allowed to eat together physically but I do think when we're allowed to again we should have a high priority you know Jesus ate with Matthew's friends Matthew the tax collector he ate with sinners he was accused wasn't he of being a, um, a glutton and a drunkard because of the amount of time he spent eating and drinking with people and um, that sounds great to me I think it's a really good way that we do church together I think as well another factor is how we do our meetings 
and thinking through church meetings, um, you know, I think there are so many ways we do meetings or did prior to the pandemic that actually accidentally are excluding people from being among us. I mean, on, on the first hand, I guess there's just the fact that when people aren't familiar with how we do church, it can be so daunting to come in. And um, I've had that when I've brought friends or family members to our meetings, whether that's Sunday meetings or smaller meetings where they're just so unsure of what you're supposed to do and what the right, again, those kind of unwritten rules, how am I supposed to behave in this context? But more than that, I think it's really interesting. Prior to coronavirus, um, I always used to say our talks are too long. Um, in my church, we talked for 35 to 40 minutes prior to lockdown. And it's always been felt that we couldn't shorten it because, you know, there's real value in talking about the Bible and, and, and real. Um, it's just helpful, isn't it, in many respects. But so we didn't want to shorten it. Um, whereas I was kind of saying, well, but people who've never been to kind of university or um, gone beyond sort of 16 education just aren't used to sitting down listening to someone talk for 35 to 40 minutes like where else do you ever do that and so it's actually alienating for people because it feels quite boring and it's interesting isn't it that during the pandemic and during lockdown suddenly we've pretty much all found oh we can shorten our talks we can stick to sort of 20 to 25 minutes which is most most people's attention span regardless of your background or your education um, attainment or whatever but I think also this is worship is another area. Um, and I think, again, this has been helped by being online. But prior to being online, one of the things uh, we found is that we actually had a woman leave our church because she couldn't read the words. And so she felt like she didn't know um, how to sing the songs along with everyone else. And again, it felt like an alienating experience during worship because she just couldn't read the words. So she left the church. That should never need to happen. I mean, that's as simple as play the songs for 15 minutes before the meeting starts so people can learn them by hearing rather than the first time they hear them is, is when you're actually trying to worship together as a congregation. So there are all sorts of ways. I could go through a whole list of ways in which we might be accidentally excluding people, but that's just a few. But just the final um, point, so mates, meal tables, meetings. The other one is money. And I think that how we use our money speaks volumes about what kind of judgments we're making about people who are not like us. I had someone come up to me in a church meeting last year and basically start telling me about this huge credit card debt that they were in. And some of it was their own fault, but some of it was necessity of life and essentials. And as they were talking to me about it, I felt um, like I wanted to pray for them. You know, like I'm a good Christian. I thought by the time they finished talking, I should offer to pray for them that God will help them with it. But I felt God say to me, do you know what? You could sort this out. Uh, one of the things I talk about a lot as I travel around uh, teaching on God's heart for those in poverty is that in the Old Testament, um, there's there was talk of loan to people interest free to help them get back on their feet and don't charge interest. And I felt God just say to me, lend the money, lend her the money. And in my head, I'll be honest with you, I was just like, no, no way. I'm not doing that. Like, what if she doesn't pay me back? Um, what if? you know like I just don't think it's a good idea God that was kind of what I was saying and I felt God basically just keep speaking to me about it and, and eventually I asked her well, this is all going on in my head while I'm talking to her but eventually I asked her well how much is the credit card debt and you know kind of annoyingly it was this almost the same amount that I had in a savings account 
And I kept saying to God, God, I just bought a flat. I need to be a responsible adult. My boiler might break. My car might break down. I can't do this. And eventually I just felt God say to me, do you know what? It's not your money. And there's not really any arguing with that. So as reluctant as I was to do what God was telling me to do, eventually I said, okay, fine. And I said to the woman, hey, look, why don't I lend you the money interest-free? You can set the terms of repayment. You can take as long as you like. And she broke down in tears and said, do you know what? I haven't told anyone else that I was in this debt because I've been so ashamed of it. She said, I felt like Christians aren't supposed to be in debt. So I didn't think I could tell anyone. I was so embarrassed. And I even felt like I can't come to God because um, I felt like he wants me to sort myself out before I can come to him. And the thing she said that really stayed with me was but that because the first person I've told has reacted with kindness towards me, I now know that God isn't like wanting to beat me with a stick over it. He's wanting me to be free from it. And my disobedience could have stood in the way of that revelation that actually God takes us with all our mess, all our bad decisions, all the things that have happened to us that we couldn't avoid. And actually he wants to pour out mercy upon us, even in those moments. And so for us, I think a huge part of becoming churches that and becoming people who welcome those with different backgrounds, of different social standing to us is cultivating this heart of mercy. You know, I think one of the most beautiful verses of the Bible is Luke 6, verse 36, where Jesus says to his followers, be merciful just as your father is merciful. We have an opportunity to press into the mercy of God. And if ever there was a time to do it, surely it's this season. Surely if ever there was a time to love our neighbours as ourselves, it's this season. To look out for people, even people who annoy us, even our own family members who maybe we're struggling with during this time or we always struggle with. There's an opportunity for us, those of us who follow Jesus, to press into the wonderful mercy of God and to be mercy bringers to those around us, to be those who show others mercy, whether they deserve it or not, whether we agree with their behaviour or not, whether we agree with their lifestyle or understand it or have ever experienced anything like it, we get to say to God, I want to be merciful just as you're merciful. Would you give me mates who are different to me so I can show mercy? Would you help me when I'm allowed to again to invite people to my meal table so I can show mercy? Would you help me to use my money to show mercy? Would you help our meetings to be a context where people experience the mercy of God and don't feel in any way alienated or excluded? I think this is a season for pressing into the mercy of God and I'd love to finish by just praying for us if that's okay. So yeah, Father, I thank you that you are merciful. Thank you that actually mercy characterises who you are and thank you for this wonderful, incredible invitation of Jesus to be merciful just as our Father is merciful. Thank you that for those who know you, Jesus, you invite us in to imitate you, to imitate the Father, to be um, opened up by the Holy Spirit, to show mercy to those who are different to us, to mix with those who are different to us and to want their good, to want to see them become oaks of righteousness, to want to see them become renewers, restorers, to have a much bigger vision, especially for those we might naturally think are weaker, God, help us to see the weakest as indispensable like you do. Help us to see the those who society wouldn't honour as those upon whom we should bestow the greatest honour, just as you do. God, would you align our hearts with yours? Would you lead us and guide us into your mercy in deeper ways?
in Jesus' name. Amen.